Well, here is our second recording from Nordico Nights, and this is uh, actually it's me preaching <laughs> um, in this one. Uh, I'm uh, my name's Harry. If you don't know me, if you're just tuning into this totally randomly, then uh, I'm Harry. I'm the student worker at the community church. Absolutely love my job, and it was my privilege to uh, share. Uh, for the Nordico Nights uh, here and uh, I'm showing from um, the book of Jonah uh, and just taking uh, the first um, verses in chapter one of that book there to really illustrate um, the gospel, the good news of Jesus in the midst of, um, of tough times um, and how how Jonah as well is a, is a book that is super, super sophisticated um, and uh, that we can really engage and interact with the Bible um, on, a, on a really deep and meaningful level. So I hope this is useful to you. Again, the sound is a, a little bit dodgy, but um, I think it's still okay to listen to. And uh, we hope that you have a good time listening to it. If you want to reach out to us at all, then you can do. Um, just uh, follow the, the links that you've, uh, you can see wherever it is that you're listening to this. Uh, so thanks again, and hope you enjoy. Uh, I'm just going to put this back on because I have a cheeky PowerPoint. Everyone knows a cheeky PowerPoint. Woo! Hopefully, it's going to all come. Um, <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm just uh, going to share with you um, something from um, the Bible. I don't know what your feelings are towards the Bible, what your knowledge is of the Bible. Um, you might think it's a little rubbish, you might think it was historically relevant in that particular time uh, when it was written, but it's not particularly relevant now. Well, you might be sat here thinking it's, it's really relevant, but I just don't know how to understand it, I don't know how to access it, I don't know how to almost even penetrate it, because it is so otherworldly. Well, you might be sat here going, uh, actually, I love the Bible, and I think it is super relevant to my life. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> Uh, but today I'm going to share with you probably from a story that I would imagine most of you know. Has anyone ever heard of the story of Jonah and the whale? The, not Noah and the whale, the, the band from the 2010s, I think. No, 2000s? Let's show my age now. Five years' time. Summer anthem of when I was 16 or something like that. Um, not Noah and the whale, but Jonah and the whale. And it's actually not a whale, it's a big fish. This is a, a picture from Gustav Dory, if you know any of your... Uh, Prince and all that kind of stuff, that's Jonah preaching in Nineveh. Um, <clears throat> Jonah, um, this, this is only four pages long, the story of Jonah. Um, I'm not going to go through all four pages, I'm just going to go through the first page with you, and there are 17 sentences. We're going to go through those 17 sentences. Is that, is that okay with you guys? Okay? So the first three sentences. Uh, this is Jonah 1, verses 1 to 3. If you do have your Bible and you want to check it out, it says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. Okay, so Jonah apparently is a man um, that needs no introduction. He needs no introduction at all. He just wanders onto the page here and we're expected to know who he is. And it, in fact, we haven't really met him in the Bible. Um, in 2 Kings, we read that he had prophesied to a king called Jeroboam, he was Jeroboam II. He ruled in the northern area of Israel, which is, there you are. At least everyone was a map, don't they? Everyone was a map. 
So in this area here, you, it, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit grungy there, but uh, that's where King Jeroboam was. And, uh, and Jonah got into a prophecy war with another guy called Amos. Amos, who has written another book in the, in the Bible. And um, basically, Amos had said, Jeroboam, you are so terrible, and the whole kingdom is doing such bad things that you will be destroyed. Okay, God is going to take his favor away, and you're going to fall away. And in fact, Jeroboam, you're going to die by the sword. And Jonah, who is a, a bit of a patriot, stands up and goes, that's not going to happen. No way, Jose, is that going to happen. In fact, the land is going to expand. That's what's going to happen. The land is going to expand. We're not going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be hunky-dory. And what in fact happened was that the land did expand, but within a couple of generations, the whole kingdom was destroyed. Okay? So both actually turned out to be right. But this is setting the portrait of the man that we are introduced to here. Okay? He's a fierce patriot and somebody who considers himself a prophet who brings the word of the Lord. Okay? Now, the, the main threat in... The main threat um, that um, was faced to Israel was a people called the Assyrians. Anyone ever heard of the Assyrian Empire before? If you go into the Victorian Albert Museum in London, there are some pretty cool reliefs that look much better than that. This is a, a man here who's been trampled by some horses. This is taken from the Assyrian thing. Now, the Assyrians were renowned for being ruthless. They were brutal. They'd go to cities, they would totally level the cities, they, they would take all the population and they'd either kill them or they'd sell them into slavery. They were not a nice people. In fact, and this may sound funny, it is not funny at all. What they would do with the soldiers that they were fighting, if they were winning, they'd chop off both of the legs, they'd chop off one arm, they would take it and they would use it to shake the hand of the other person as they did the final blow. They were brutal. Okay, they were the meanest of the mean. Okay, and the capital, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh, which is right here. So here's Israel, here's Nineveh. Oh, what's the focus? Here's Nineveh, and God says to Jonah, "Go to Nineveh and preach to them." Okay, go to Nineveh. It would be like asking a rabbi to go into Berlin during Nazi-occupied Germany, Germany, and telling them to preach to them, or asking Zelensky's right-hand man to go into the streets of Moscow and preach and get Putin to change his mind about the war. It, it just defies logic. It defies rationality. But this is the very beginning of how this book begins to mess with you. Because as we start to see the prejudices which mark Jonah as he's told to go into this area, and, and, and how that changes his decision-making process. And we can see how, how, when we start to reflect, how our prejudices mark the way that we engage in the counter with people. And so it's really starting to mess with me. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's concluding, ultimately, that we can't see any good reason as to why God would tell us to do something. And Jonah is asked to do this, and he goes, there is no good reason for me to go to Nineveh, therefore, if God is wrong, I'm going to do it my own way. And, and, and I know for me, 
that I've found myself in, in that position before where I, I know that God has put me into a certain situation, a certain circumstance, and I'm like, there is no good reason for me to be here. I'm going to try and do it my own way. And it could be for you that you've, um, you've sat in a room where um, family or friends are going through a terrible ordeal. It might be that um, you're looking for employment and you just let, you can't find it. You don't know um, what the future is going to look like for you. You can't find your true love. Where is that boyfriend? Where is that girlfriend? Where I'm going to be able to, to settle down and really um, come into my life. And we can just go, God has no good reason for me to be in this situation at the moment. So I'm going to take it into my own hands. And so what does Job do? Well, we read that he, he goes off to Tarshish. Now, this is you're going to like this, okay? Does anyone know where Tarshish is? Tarshish is literally the other side of the known world, okay? So in the ancient world here, the Sabbath, this is the Gibraltar Straits around here, that they didn't know anything beyond that. No knowledge of America or anything like that. It was as far west as you could go. So Jonah literally goes, sack that for soldiers. I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go as far away as possible, away from the presence of God, so that I don't have to do what God is telling me to do. Tashish. I mean, it's just a bit ridiculous, really. But this is what Jonah is doing. And there are two types of running that the Bible really talks about. There's one type of running, which is... Um, just kind of the outright rejection of God. We see this in the story of the prodigal sons. Um, many of us would have heard of this story. There's a father who's rich, he's got two sons, and one son comes to him and says, please, can I have all of my inheritance so that I can go off and do whatever I want to spend the money how I want to be effectively saying, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me your money. Okay? I've got some children. If they hadn't said that to me, I would not be a happy bunny. Okay? The dad, in his wisdom, in his foolishness, he goes, he goes and says, here's your inheritance, sir. Go off and spend it however you want. So what's he do? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll has the same time of his life, um, gets rid of all of his money, and eventually ends up as a pauper. He's trying to fight with pigs for food. And so he then ends up going back to his dad and, and pleading just to be a servant in his household so that he can, he can be back. He is rejecting the ways of his father to go and do whatever it is that he wants. Okay, It's quite an obvious way in which we reject God. But the, the second step, what he does, is he, he stays around, he sticks with his dad, and he does everything that his dad wants him to do. Okay, But when the son comes back, and the dad welcomes him back with open arms. He says, you're not going to be a servant. Come, we'll have a feast. You return, you're my son, I'll give you my ring, we dress you, you're back into the fold. He is livid. He is utterly, utterly furious. He, he can't understand why his dad would allow this to take place. And what he has done is he's lived a good life, so to speak, but he's actually kept his father at arm's distance. So outwardly, it's like he's doing the right stuff, but inwardly, it's so that he can control his dad. And that uh, his dad becomes in his head, look, I've done all of this good stuff, so I should be able to get more time on And so we have these two types of ways of, that, that are running away, that are actually both rejecting God. One, where we're obviously running away, and another, when we are seemingly following the good way, but actually we're just trying to keep God at arm's distance. 
We're going to the next few verses. You all follow me so far. So it's okay. Okay? Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So let's talk about storms. Storms are a really great analogy for difficult circumstances in our life. Okay? You can't talk to a storm. You can't reason with a storm. You can't overpower a storm. You can't bribe a storm. It totally controls that part of your life. Okay? And so we can come into these moments where our life just feels like a storm. We have no control whatsoever. And, and some people will talk about how, um, and we see this with Jonah, how a storm is sent from God um, because of the sin that he's gone into. Okay? And so we can sometimes then uh, do two and two make five and go, well, therefore, every storm that is sent is because of the sin. And that, that's not true. Okay? The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. Okay? You can't treat your bodies in different means still expect to have good health. You can't treat people indifferently and still expect to maintain good relationships. You can't put your own selfish interests ahead of the common good and still have a functioning society. Okay? If we violate these things, bad things will happen. But often, it's not like, um, it's not like a bullet wound, it's not like boom, through and through, and you're done kind of thing. Often it's a bit like gamma radiation. We've had some people in the church lately who have been very, very ill and they had to take chemotherapy or they had to take radiotherapy. And it's like slowly but surely really damaging them. Okay, to kill the cancer so that they can come through. But sin, what sin does is it's like gamma radiation where it can, it can feel good to begin with. It's tempting. It's, it's like a bit of a drug and you're doing good stuff and it feels good and all that kind of thing. But actually, it slowly starts to poison you and kill you, and then grabs a hold of you, and it's like you can't get out. Okay? Um, but for some of us, we may simply be caught in a storm because of other people's mistakes and choices, uh, because we live in a world that is subject to the fall. Okay? Uh, it, the Bible, we've already said, doesn't say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that the Christians every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. But what storms can do is they can wake us up to truths we would otherwise never see. So storms can develop faith, they can develop hope, love, patience and humility, self-control in a way that nothing else can. Okay? So in this story, we read that Jonah is deep asleep. He's deep asleep. Okay? He is totally oblivious, not just to the fact that there is this storm that is going on, He's totally oblivious to the fact that everybody else's life is in serious danger, and it's all because of him. It's his fault. And he just doesn't care. Okay? Some people would say that he's sleeping the sleep of sorrow. I know that when uh, things are a bit tough for me, sometimes the phrase that we might often use is you just stick your head in the sand. Okay? You sleep it off, you get distracted, you watch Netflix, whatever it is. What's that one there for? Oh, I remember. 
Um, and, uh, and we are just not engaging with what is taking place at all, okay? Um, the prophet of God is totally absorbed in himself, but the sailors, they're trying everything they can do to make sure that everyone is safe. They're, they're tossing out cargo, they're working on the ship, they're praying to any god that they can to, to get salvation, but still nothing is happening. With the captain, he goes to Jonah, and he actually ends up using, using the very same words that God uses to Jonah to tell him to go to Nineveh. He says, get up and call. And the captain says, get up and call on your God. So God sends his prophet to point the pagans towards God. And he goes on this boat and it ends up being the pagan that points the prophet back towards God. It's ridiculous. It's totally upside down. And it shows that there's a place for the world to rebuke the church for the things that it's not doing where it should be doing. Okay? Okay. Jonah is neither trying to restore these people's relationship toward God, nor is he trying to meet their practical needs um, by loving and serving them. God commands believers to do both things, not either or, but both and. Jonah's private faith is no public good. It is no public good whatsoever. Okay, next verse is. So then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. I mean, this is quite funny, because they knew that he was running away from the Lord, but they didn't know what the Lord was the God of. And Jonah stands there and he says, uh, my God is the God of the land and the sea. He's like, it's the God of the land and the sea, and we're on a boat? Naughty. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. We've got to fix this. What can we do? But what they're doing is they're, they're essentially asking three things. They're asking his purpose, what's his mission, uh, his place, where do you come from, uh, what is your country, um, and his race, who are your people? These are identity questions. Um, and every person's identity has multiple aspects. Um, but, but what these sailors are tr- really trying to get a handle on is, is whose are you? Okay? Um, uh, in, in their minds, human identity factors, they were, they were linked to what you worship. Okay? And so back in the ancient world, it's, well, what, what God do you worship? And so in our modern day context, we, we might say, well, people no longer believe in gods, and often don't believe in any god at all. So actually, this superstitious view that your identity is rooted in what you worship is actually irrelevant today. But to say this is, is actually a bit of a fundamental error, because many while we would all agree that there aren't multiple personal, conscious, supernatural beings attached to all of these professions that we get, um, that there's no actual Roman god named Mercury or no actual Roman god named Venus. Mercury was the god of money. But we, we recognize that from people's experience and encounter with money, that actually money is like a god in their lives. It controls every aspect of their life. And, and so that becomes the thing that you worship because it defines everything that you do. Or with Venus, there's no god of Venus, but Venus was the god of beauty, the god of love. But we know that we are trapped in a culture 
where the idolization of beauty and perfection according to whoever it is that decides rules so many people's lives that we are facing a mental health epidemic today of the like that we have never seen before. And people say, you don't worship anything. Whose are you? Okay? And this is part of the radical claim of Christianity that any identity that is based on anything less than God will lead to a life not necessarily marked by, uh, by comfort or a lack of difficulty, as I was saying before, but one in which through the strength of being built together with Jesus, with every resource, to face up to any circumstance that comes our way. That is the radical claim of Christianity. But there are people that we know that, that, that know Jesus, I'm saying that we know, not like pointing or looking at anybody in the room or anything like that, but we know that there are people out there that, that claim to know Jesus and yet they still fall to these things. And, and this is what happens when we don't let the love of Jesus permeate our very, very core. So, for example, you might sincerely believe that, that Jesus died for your sins, yet your significance and your security can be far more grounded in your career and financial worth and the way that people think about you than in the love of God through Jesus. Okay? Shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists, can be greedy materialists, they can be addicted to beauty, to pleasure, uh, bitterness, filled with anxiety, all those kinds of things. And it's because we've not allowed the love of Jesus to permeate on very, very poor. And I, I, I'm writing this, and I feel convicted in myself. Where I know that there are things there that I'm just insecure. And I need to, to come afresh before Jesus and ask to have a fresh understanding and a fresh experience of his love. Okay? Because shallow identity leads us not being able to see ourselves. And that means for God and his grace to come and to expose us to his life or to wake us up in a storm. Okay, the next verse is, we're nearly there, guys. The sea is getting rougher and rougher. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? So Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did the best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out, I mean, that's just incredible. Jonah comes and says to these guys, chuck me in the sea, everything's going to be all right. And these guys, who have no reason to keep him in, still try their best to save him. They do, with all of their effort, is the absolute last resort that they, they go in and chuck him in. And then they cried out to the Lord, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, although he's not innocent. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And often one of the first steps um, into coming into one sense, uh, one sense is a, uh, uh, of waking up spiritually is when we finally start thinking of somebody, actually when we start thinking of anybody else apart from me, okay? So, so Jonah 
and his response to the sailors is saying something like this, you are dying for me, but I should be dying for you. I'm the one with whom God is angry, so you need to throw me in. Okay? Jonah's pity arouses in him some sense of love. And, and love at its core, love at its purest form, is uh, what we call substitutionary. That is where you are willing to lay down your life for somebody else. So I've got three kids, my kids are three, two, and one. Olive just turned one yesterday. I know, yeah, it has flown by. But let me tell you, when people ask me, what's it like going from one to two, and all that kind of stuff, you know, when you have your first child, you lose all of your free time, okay? And then when you, lose, when you have your second child, what, what free time you thought you had goes, okay? And then when you get your third child, I don't know what it is for but when you're in your third child, you're kind of like riding a wave of peak exhaustion because you've got you've got to eat into some other kind of time, okay? And uh, but, but what it is, it's an act of laying down my life for my children. I'm not perfect; I mess up more often than I want to. But in, in laying my life down for them, I'm actually expressing me, and in sacrificing myself, it means less of me and more of them. Okay, Jesus comes and says, no greater love is there than this, than to lay one's life down for a friend. And this is the overarching message of the gospel, is are we willing to lay our lives down? Are we willing to do it? And the only way that we can do that is by recognizing what Jesus did for us in laying down his life for each and every one of us, so that we can be empowered to be able to restore and renew this world, just as God had originally intended <clears throat> but we see in this story actually some similarities to a story with Jesus. Okay, so in uh, in Mark four, there's a story about Jesus calming the storm. And Mark is, I mean, it's pretty clear when you go through it, but he's making a lot of uh, allusions to uh, to the Jonah story. Uh, he uses nearly identical words and phrases. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both are in storms described in similar tones. Both boats are filled with others who are terrified of death. Both groups wake the sleeping prophets angrily, rebuking them. Both storms are miraculously calmed and the companions saved. Both stories conclude with the men in boats more terrified after the storm is still than they were before. Every feature is the same, with rather what well, with one exception. Okay? Jonah is sacrificed into the storm. He's, he's thrown and cast out of the boat, satisfying the wrath of God so that others will be saved from it. But Jesus is not. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> Jesus, he, he says, he describes himself in Matthew 12 as the ultimate Jonah. He was the one that was thrown into the ultimate deeps. He was the one that, that went into the, the ultimate storm for us. Okay? They, they believe in the Mark 4 story. The disciples, they believe that Jesus is going to sleep in them in the, in the greatest hour of need. But actually, it's the other way around. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's, it's the disciples that fall asleep on him. Okay? Jonah died for his own sin. But Jesus is thrown into the ultimate storm for our sin. Jesus was able to save the disciples from the storm because he was thrown into the ultimate storm. And so the question for us can be, you know, are we in a storm? Or do we feel like we're in a storm in our life? 
Have you have you felt have you oh, sorry have you prayed and felt like God must just be asleep on you at the moment? Because I can tell you that He's not. How do you know? Because He has turned His boat into the ultimate storm, and He has endured it for each and every one of you. So you can know that He will not abandon you in your storm. So why can't we trust the One who did that for us? Okay. I love the scriptures. I think they are really sophisticated. I think they're really clever. I think it needs time. I think it needs meditation. But ultimately, they come and they speak words of life to us. I don't know where you are acting your faith. But we all walk through storms in this life. And for each of us, we have an opportunity to come and take Jesus by the hand and say, I trust you. I don't know why it is that I'm going through what it is that I'm going through. But ultimately, God, I trust you. And I believe that you are good for me where it is that I'm going. Thanks for tuning in to the Community Church Student Podcast. Uh, subscribe to us so that you can follow and uh, catch all of the great stuff that we're going to be releasing over the coming weeks and months. And if you want to reach out to us, then please do so by following any of the links that you can uh, see where you are listening uh, to this podcast. Uh, But for now, uh, we pray the blessing of God in you and that you have a fantastic rest of your day. And thank you for tuning in.